You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. And Merry Christmas. I pray that you and your family had a great day celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ yesterday. And what a joy the day after Christmas to be here together and to continue in worship. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, particularly Hebrews chapter 1. And I know today we have all of our children here with us, which we're so thrilled by. We always love our children being in service. And so I know there might be a little bit more interruptions. So parents, that's okay. Don't worry about it. We understand. And uh, and if you have a little harder time paying attention today, uh, then be sure to give extra thanksgiving to the many Redemption Kids workers, right, that help out each Sunday. And so may your heart be filled with gratitude for them and their service to you each Sunday. But let me invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. As we finish out this year, we will finish out this Christmas series uh, through these four key Christological passages in the New Testament. And so I've been so grateful for the the opportunity to prepare and to preach these messages. I know this has been a, a very rigorous Christmas series, and you yet, you keep coming back. So I'm, I'm so grateful that you as a church have such an eagerness to hear the meaty things of the word uh, and such joy. I know that a series like this, I could not preach in every congregation. They might run me out, uh, but yet you, you keep me and uh, you respond to the word so joyously. And so we're going to continue to do that this Sunday as we turn to Hebrews chapter one. As we conclude Hebrews today and conclude this Christmas series, I'm excited about next week, not only because we'll be starting the stewardship course seminar uh, that Pastor Tim and Brian will be teaching us through, but we'll also be starting a new sermon series for the book of Ephesians, which as I have mapped out, uh, we will spend all year in these six chapters of Ephesians. So if you've enjoyed these slower, more meditative sermons uh, over Christmas, you'll get ready to get a lot more of that uh, this next year. So looking forward to to spending next year in God's word together as a church family. Uh, But let's turn now to Hebrews chapter one. I'm going to read verse one through four to give us the context, but our focal verse will actually be verse three. So let's read Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, we are grateful for the time as a church family we've spent together this December thinking deeply about what it means for you, the eternal word, to become incarnate. Father, we have been overjoyed as we've thought so deeply about what it means for you, the word, to join yourself fully and completely and permanently to true humanity, 
And Lord, as we have the events of Christmas freshly on our mind, particularly this being the day after Christmas, I pray that this text would further help us to be in awe and in amazement over your grace, over your generosity to us, or particularly as we think today about how Christ is the radiance of your glory, God, how he is the exact imprint of your nature. So, Father, we pray that we would be enamored with the Lord Jesus today. And, Lord, that you might do that by your spirit through the preaching of your word, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, the events of Christmas are mesmerizing, aren't they? Today, of course, being the day after Christmas, those events of Jesus' birth are freshly on our mind, even as we've read from Luke 2 this morning. Because the whole narrative of Luke's gospel has this sort of quaintness to it, doesn't it? We, we can picture Joseph and the very pregnant Mary traveling on that road to Bethlehem for the census. We can imagine that bustling city of Bethlehem with no room and to host this young family. As we read Luke's account, we can almost smell the, the rustic odor of, Christmas, of Christ's birth among all those animals in the stable. We, we can almost visualize, can't we, the, the grimy and humble shepherds who arrive to welcome the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there's a quaintness to the events of the Christmas story. But the birth of Christ, and this is what we must always remember, the birth of Christ, not just a quaint little story by which we decorate our houses in manger scenes. The, the, the reality of Christmas is that God himself has arrived. He has come to us, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That even though Jesus was born in the most humble of settings, in this unnoticed and unknown part of the world, yet at that place, in that event, in time, in the birth of Christ, in all of its meekness and all of its quaintness, there is an explosion. There is a rupture of history as God himself arrives in the world. As the eternal word of God becomes enfleshed and dwells among us. So over these last few weeks, throughout this whole series, we've sought to understand just who this Jesus is. What happens in the incarnation? Who is the person of Christ? So we've considered, what does it mean for God to become enfleshed? We've, we've wondered, what is the identity of this Christ who has come? And so with these events of Christmas freshly on our mind, we come now to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is a fourth critical passage in the New Testament about the person of Christ. And so I want to zoom in our focus today on Hebrews 1, verse 3, particularly the first half of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's the section of this text we'll be focusing on. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So as we've sought to understand this Christmas, the glory of Christ, our passage today will help us to see that this baby born in Bethlehem is the supreme and glorious God of the universe. And we ought to respond this day as we should do every day, in fear and trembling as we consider the glory of Christ. So like we've done throughout the series, I want to first give us an overview of the text before expounding upon a particular doctrine in this text. And then as we conclude the doctrinal section of the sermon, we'll then move into four applications at the end of the sermon. So let me first give us an overview 
of the text. The book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it, it's a glorious and unique book in the New Testament. For one, we aren't entirely sure who composed the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is. Scholars have proposed many different theories, but simply we don't know who the author of this book is. And interestingly enough, the book of Hebrews reads much more like a sermon than it does an epistle. As this book is filled with exhortations and expositions from the Old Testament, and it's often intermingled with these direct applications being made uh, to these Jews, Jewish Christians. So the book of Hebrews is written to these Jewish Christians that are facing persecution, fierce persecution. And the temptation that is lurking in the back of their minds is that, well, maybe we should abandon Christianity and just go back to Judaism because this whole following Jesus, picking up your cross and following him, being persecuted for the faith, that's kind of hard. And so the author of Hebrews admonishes these Jewish Christians to persist in their faith, to continue on in Christ, and he helps them see by showing how Christ is supreme over all. And with this sort of comprehensive knowledge of the Old Testament, the author makes the case throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of Moses, that he alone is the great high priest, not in the order of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek, who has done away with the Levitical priesthood. So within the scope of this aim, the author opens up this book with one long, majestic sentence. In the original language, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, is one big sentence that introduces and sets up the themes that will be developed throughout the the book of Hebrews. And so in this single sentence, we get this sort of breathtaking description of the person of Christ and how he is indeed supreme over all. So let's look at this one sentence here. Look at verse 1 through 2. We see that verse 1 through 2 sets up the supremacy of Christ overall that will be described in verse 3 through 4. So this one sentence has a hinge right down the middle. Now, this sentence marks a transition in its subject. So verse 1 through 2 in these verses that God the Father is the primary actor who has spoken by his Son. But in verse 3, we shift to the actions of the Son in verses 3 and 4. So in verses 1 through 2, the author emphasizes that Christ is the definitive and final revelation of God. And while God in the past has spoken through the prophets, now in these later days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then the author of Hebrews begins to describe the son, and he describes him in all sorts of wonderful ways. He's described as the heir of all things. He's described as the creator of the world. He's described as the radiance of God's glory. He's described as the great, the exact imprint of God's nature. He's described as the upholder of the universe. He's described as the one who made purification for sins. He's described as the ruler at God's right hand. As Kent Hughes, Pastor Kent Hughes summarized, Christ is shown in this text as the inheritor, Creator, sustainer, radiator, representer, purifier, ruler. This is a majestic description of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for all these reasons, the author of Hebrews is helping us see that the Son is superior over all, even over the angels. There is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He alone is excellent. He alone is worthy of worship. But we are focusing our attention as we look at this text on the person of Christ, particularly what it means for the deity of the Son to be enfleshed. So we will limit our focus from this text on two aspects of Christ's description in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and he's the exact imprint of his nature. So what does it mean when the author says he's the radiance of God's glory? And then what does it mean for Christ to be the exact imprint of his nature? So here's the doctrine I want to put before us. We see that Christ is the definitive revelation of God's glory and nature because he possesses the same nature. So Christ is the definitive revelation of God's glory and nature because he possesses that exact same nature. So from this text, this is what we're going to see. So in other words, the glory and nature of God are revealed comprehensively in the person of Christ. So let's take each description one at a time, and let's see first how Christ reveals God's glory. And then secondly, we will see what it means for Christ to possess God's nature. And then thirdly, we'll consider how the Son uniquely reveals that nature to us. So here's the first thing. God's glory is the public revealing of God's nature. So in these opening of verse 3, these two phrases function as a parallel. If you're familiar a little bit with Hebrew poetry, you might notice this parallelism here, like in the Psalms. In fact, some scholars think that this section of this hymn uh, has its roots in a Christian hymn that was used at the time. Notice the similar structure. You can see it in the ESV, that sort of parallelism. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So because of the parallel structure of this section, the word glory and nature are put by the author as synonyms. In other words, God's glory is God's nature. The Bible uses the term glory so frequently, and we Christians use that word glory so flippantly that defining the word can be a bit troublesome for us. If I was to ask you to give a definition of glory, what would you define it as? So glory often refers to this high standing or high honor. In fact, the the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, has with its connotation uh, a weightiness or a heaviness, sort of the difference between a ball of aluminum and a bar of gold, right? One has a, a glory to it, a weightiness, a value to it. The gold is not the aluminum foil, right? The gold is weighty. It's got a glory, a heaviness. So when we speak of God's glory, our text helps us see exactly what we mean when we use the term glory. God's glory refers to the public revealing of his nature. In other words, glory is not a property that God has, like you might have brown hair. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, God's glory is the revelation of the entirety of his nature to us. In other words, God's glory is more of a verb and less of a noun. God's glory is God revealing himself to us, including the fullness of his divine being. So God's glory, when we talk about it, we're not talking about some external object that God shares with us. But God's glory is, in fact, God sharing with us himself. 
and all of his holiness and all of his justice and all of his compassion and love and power, the complete perfection of all of God's excellency is being made known to us. God is sharing that with us. God's glory is the public sharing of his divine being. Now, what makes the Son of God so supreme then is that our text says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that the person of Christ is how God reveals himself entirely to us. Through the incarnation of Jesus, God's glory shines upon our darkened hearts. So our text leads us to consider a glorious truth that the Father is distinct from the Son, but the Son shares the exact same nature as the Father. And here we peer in yet again to the doctrine of the Trinity with truths so glorious we have a hard time comprehending them. But to gain a better understanding of our glorious God, we're going to attempt to do so. And that leads us secondly to the Son is distinct from the Father, and he's of the same nature as the Father. The Son is distinct from the Father, our text shows this, but he is of the same nature as the Father. Both phrases in verse 3 stress both unity and distinction in the Godhead. Look again at that first phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Christ, the text says, radiates God's glory. Now, what does that word radiate bring to mind? What well, brings to mind the image of the sun and its rays. But just as the sun is distinct from its rays, so is the sun distinct from the Father. But yet, we can't consider the rays apart from the sun, nor the sun apart from the rays. It's impossible to have one without the other. So too it is with God. There is distinction and unity. They are unique and inseparable. So Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the text says, not the reflection of God's glory. The difference between those two words are paramount. It's the difference between truth and error. If Christ only reflected God's glory, then he would be but a moon, a lesser light that reflects the sun. But Christ doesn't reflect God's glory like a moon. He radiates God's glory like the beams of the sun. Because if Christ only reflected God's glory, then he is, he's but a mirror showing the reflection of another. But if Christ radiates God's glory, then he himself is the glory of God, even as he is the one communicating that glory to us. So Christ is both distinct from the Father and is of the same nature as the Father. Our second phrase in the text makes the identical point. It says Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint. There are some unique words to the New Testament in this phrase that we need to unpack. The phrase, the exact imprint, comes from the Greek word character. Character, meaning stamp or imprint. So we have official government documents, such as a birth certificate. Hope you have one of those. Maybe you have a social security card. And for the most part, if you go into an employer, you don't need to bring the original copies of those documents. A photocopy will do the same. The photocopy carries the same weight of authority as an original. 
But in our digital age of reproduction, that makes sense. We can easily make copies of things that are as good as the original. But in the ancient world, it was not so. Because guess what? There were no photocopiers, right? They didn't have them. So a copy of the document did not have the same force of the original because anybody could simply forge it unless the document was stamped or imprinted by a governmental authority. Thus, a character, the exact imprint, the word used here, refers to a permitted and authorized reproduction. Just as good as the original. So if this word, it's this word that the author uses to describe the person of Christ. He has the exact imprint, the exact stamp of the divine nature. Now notice again how this passage helps us see that Christ is both distinct from the Father, yet he is of the same nature as the Father. He is distinct yet the same. The phrase here is similar to Paul's use of the word image in the book of Colossians, where he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so Christ has the exact imprint of the Father's divine nature. He shares it completely, totally, comprehensively. In other words, he's fully divine, but yet he is distinct from the Father. What glorious truths these are. So for the first few centuries of the church, the early Christians wrestled with how, how do we talk about Hebrews here. How do we talk about this passage? How do we articulate the doctrine of the Trinity? Christians have always been monotheists, but yet the scriptures teach that the Son is fully divine, but yet he is distinct from the Father. How can both things be? There is one God. So how do we speak about the nature of God? The, the heretic Arius attempted to preserve God's oneness by denying the divinity of Christ which is a wrong and heretical thing to do. And it would take people like Athanasius and others to combat this heresy and help the church to arrive at a clear articulation of what the scriptures teach, scriptures like Hebrews 1 verse 3. So the church eventually settled on the language that God exists, as we render it in English, as three persons in one God. We use that phrase so frequently and so regularly today when we talk about the Trinity that we are often oblivious to the faithful Christians who helped pass on this language to us to help us learn how to rightly talk about who God is. So in our text, we see this reality, this Trinitarian reality. We see that the Son possesses the fullness of divine nature, the exact imprint, but yet he is distinct from the Father. And yet the Son of God makes known to us God's glory. In other words, he makes the divine nature known to us, that the incarnation of the Son of God guarantees our redemption. Yes, and amen, and praise the Lord. But the incarnation of Jesus is also God giving us the definitive and comprehensive revelation of who he is. Remember Hebrews 1-2, but in these last days, God the Father has spoken to us by his son. So let us thirdly consider just how the son radiates the glory of the divine nature to us. That's our third point. The son radiates the glory of the divine nature to us. So just as we can't separate the sun apart from its rays and apart from its heat, so too we can't know the divine nature of God without the radiance of the glory of Christ. In other words, the Son makes known to us the God who is there. 
Without heat and without light, we would not know the sun exists, would we? Without Christ and without his spirit, we would not know the Father. Similar to, as Paul says in Colossians, Christ is the image of the invisible God, meaning that he makes the invisible God visible to us. He makes God knowable. So thus, Christ's condescension in his incarnation is Christ is the Father's great accommodation to us. God must make accommodations in order to communicate with us. Because in our spiritual deafness and in our creaturely finiteness, we cannot understand who God is unless God so graciously translates his glory in a way that we can comprehend it and understand it. So thus, God has made himself known by creation. He's made himself known by the prophets. But what Hebrews helps us see is that the clearest and most comprehensive revelation of God's own heart and character comes in the person of Christ, who is the radiance of his glory. And as the eternal son becomes incarnate, as he assumes true humanity, Jesus still re-radiates the entirety of God's glory to us through the veil of his humanity. So thus God has made his glory and wisdom known fully to us in his son, even as he concealed his glory during Christ's ministry by the assumption of our human nature. Here's why the cross of Christ and the resurrection bring God glory. Because in his sufferings, Christ makes purification for our sins, the text says. As our high priest, he pays the penalty for our sin. He deals fundamentally with our corrupted nature caused by our fall and our rebellion against God. But now that Christ has died and now in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus redeems what he has assumed. He redeems our humanity. And the resurrected Christ demonstrates that the full glory of God can be displayed in his resurrected humanity. Christ has formed by his death and resurrection a new way to be human, a new humanity. That those who are united to Jesus by faith, who share in his sufferings and indeed, yes, share in his resurrection. You see, Christ in his resurrected victory has restored our human nature. Indeed, not only has he restored, but he has recreated us so that we who are being made in the divine image can now in Christ fully radiate and, and reflect back to God the glory of God in our future resurrection. So during Christ's life and ministry, the glory of God was often veiled. People didn't recognize it. They didn't see it. But yet, even as Isaiah said, even though he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, as our text says, the fullness of God, a fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Colossians 2 verse 9. So at the resurrection, the veil of Jesus's weakness is removed. As Christ has taken on our weak human flesh and has fully created a new humanity who possesses the image of God without disfigurement from sin's corruption. So that we may one day, when we are fully glorified, that we might reflect back to God his glory, the glory that he is due. So while Christ, the eternal son, radiates God's glory to us as the beams of the sun, we as recipients of that glory, redeemed by Christ, then reflect that glory back to Christ as moons. But yet Christ's redemption of our humanity shows us the great dignity and capacity of our human nature as we have the ability, redeemed by Christ, to reflect back to God his glory. 
So does God's glory radiate to us through the Son and through the Son's work in redeeming our fallen humanity. We can, now united to the Son by faith, we can reemanate, we can reflect back to God the glory that we have received with untainted praise. You see, God's glory is like a fountain that flows down to us through Christ. And then the grace we have received is returned to God in glorious praise. So God has sent his son to us as God's grace and as God's glory enfleshed. And as the son assumes our flesh, he redeems it, thereby enabling us to reflect to God the glory that he is due. So all glory is revealed to us in Christ, and to Christ returns all glory. So he is both the source of God's glory, and he is the object of the saints' glory. And through the great work of redemption, God's glory is not just funneled, recycled like a water pumping in a fountain, but God's glory is increased. It's increased that from the source of his being through his son to his church, back again unto himself, God's praise is enlarged through the great work of redemption. So the glory of God will crescendo for all eternity, always increasing, never diminishing. That the floodwaters of God's love will never recede, but always rise. And so in the sweetness of Christ's persons, we, by God's grace, are participants in the divine nature through this glorious drama of redemption, which increases the glory of the Lord. So how can that be? How can an unchangeable God increase in glory? Yes, God remains unchangeable in his infinite perfections. So it is not his excellency which increases, his perfection can't increase anymore. But it is our comprehension of God's glory that will increase. And thereby the love and the joy and the pleasure that we know in God will ever increase from age to age as we will comprehend the glory of God with increasing clarity and comprehension. So thus, heaven is progressive in glory because our comprehension of God's perfection will always be increasing. It's, it's dynamism doesn't stem from God's changing nature, but our increasing apprehension of the divine nature. And so because God's perfections are infinite, all of eternity will not be enough time for our worship to match his worth. Thus, we can say that in our glorification, our sinful nature will be eliminated by God's grace and that the full image of God will be restored at the resurrection of the dead and our glorification will mark the start of an eternal growing in our enjoyment and pleasure of God that will go on for eternity. And so the supremacy of Christ is exalted over all because he is both the radiance of God's glory and he is the exact imprint of his nature. So now that we've attempted to peer into truths that maybe you understood and maybe you didn't, that's okay. These are mysterious things we're talking about here. Let me give us four applications of what this means. What I've tried to lay out for you about the nature of God, about the person of Christ, about how Jesus redeems us. Let me give you four applications. First, get to know the person of Christ, for through him we know the fullness of God's character. Get to know the person of Christ. Because if you want to know God, you know God through Jesus. 
Because Jesus, as our text says, is the exact imprint of the divine nature, as we learn Christ, we are filled with the knowledge of God. Christ's incarnation shows us God's glory, God's nature, God's being. So if you want to know who God is, you want to know who God is like, then look to Jesus, and you'll see. Christ's incarnation shows us God's glory. So study the Gospels. Get to know them, where we see the Savior act and speak. In the Gospels, we see the fullness of God's character as Jesus engages in his ministries. In the Gospels, we see Jesus tenderly healing the sick. We see him having compassion on the hungry. We see him showing mercy to sinners. We we see him rebuking the proud. We see him outwitting his opponents. We see him overturning tables in righteous anger. We see him turning the other cheek to his captors. We see him forgiving Peter in the midst of his betrayal. We see him pronouncing judgment upon the Pharisees in Jerusalem. We see him speaking with divine authority and commanding nature and demons to do what he wills. We see him teaching with unrivaled wisdom and insight and so much more. Indeed, we see the person of Christ not only in the Gospels, but in all the scriptures, because as Jesus said, they all point to him. So if you want to know Jesus, and I pray you do, you want to know Jesus, study the scriptures. They are the inspired and authoritative testimony of the person of Christ. You see, far too many people today avoid the testimony of scripture and instead fabricate a Jesus of their own making. We, we tend to, humanity does, we have this tendency to want to sand off the characteristics of Jesus that we don't like in the Bible, and then we twist his existing character into whatever we find palatable. May it never be so of us. Friend, listen carefully. God is not, Jesus is not who you would like him to be. Jesus is who he is. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. You don't get to vote for who God is any more than an ant gets to bark an order at the president of the United States. So therefore, humble yourself before Christ, who reveals to us the excellency of God's character. It's ingrained in human nature to have a longing for the transcendent, to know something of the divine. But that impulse due to sin leads us to idolatry repeatedly. We don't have to fabricate a God of our own imagination. God has revealed himself to us in Christ. We don't have to guess or wonder or figure out who God is. God has shown himself to us fully and truly in the person of Christ. So if you want to know God, commit yourself to knowing the son revealed in the scriptures. Don't make the mistake of Philip, the disciple, who, while following Jesus, dares to ask him, Lord, Show us the Father. Sounds like a spiritual question, but Jesus is actually offended at the question. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Church, if you want to know the Father, look to the Son, who is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Commit yourself to knowing this Christ. 
Secondly, since God's son alone possesses true humanity and divinity, he alone can make purification for our sins. He alone can do it. In order for God to rescue us, it required the sending of his son. And in this grand opening sentence of the book, these first four verses of Hebrews, the author introduces what he will elaborate on in greater detail over the course of the book of Hebrews. That Christ, the incarnate God, makes atonement for our sin. That because of his unique identity as the God-man, he alone can mediate a better covenant as he can represent both deity and humanity, thereby bringing reconciliation between both God and man. So just as the author of Hebrews will say later on, in fact, you're welcome to flip over to Hebrews chapter 9, if you've got your Bible open, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 through 28, <coughs> the author will say later on, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, so because Christ is the radiance of God's glory, because he's the exact imprint of his nature, his death provides atonement for sin once and for all. It's the one and only sacrifice that if Christ Jesus possessing the full holiness and righteousness of God, if he lays down his life to atone for your sin, surely then we have full atonement. How, how could the blood of Christ be lacking in any way? Indeed, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are purified from your sins by his blood once and for all. Only a divine and perfect Savior, only a God-in-the-flesh Savior could provide the rescue from our deserved condemnation. But yet Jesus does just that for his saints. That, that if you're not a Christian this, on this day after Christmas, perhaps much of this discussion about Christ's glory and how he's the exact imprint of God's nature, maybe that feels, feels a little bit wonderful to you, but perhaps a little confusing. That's okay. Join the rest of us. But, but at, at its essence, the gospel is really quite simple. So don't miss it. God is holy and righteous and good. He created you to praise him and to worship him. But yet instead, you, like all of us, rejected him, rebelled against him, and you are filled with sin. And by God's grace, here's the good news. God sends his eternal son into the flesh to rescue you from the death that you deserve. The good news of the gospel is that anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ would be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God, that they would have full atonement, that they would no longer be under the judgment of their sins because Christ Jesus has taken their judgment for, for themselves. So if you don't know this Christ, if you don't have this salvation, I pray that today you would place your faith in Christ. Only in Jesus do we have God's gracious provision of salvation. Thirdly, because Christ possesses the nature of God, he is supreme over all and deserves our highest praise. Because Christ possesses the nature of God, he is supreme over all, and he deserves yours, he deserves mine, he deserves our highest praise. 
Church, Jesus has no rivals. None. That the great description of Jesus in these first four verses culminates in one clear, irrefutable truth that Christ is superior. He's superior. That because of Jesus' identity, he is deserving of all of our praise, all of our adoration, all of our worship. That this humble baby born in Bethlehem is the almighty God incarnate. So therefore, Christ came humbly. But he has now been exalted in his resurrection. He has ascended to his Father's right hand in glory. So by your life, live for his glory. Live for him. Make Jesus' name great. Seek to commit to live your life to showcase the supremacy of Jesus overall. If you know this Christ, if you have received this redemption, this purification from sins, then may we all live in glad submission to this king who in his kindness has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and who has bestowed upon us every blessing in heaven. So may we strive to be like him as his Holy Spirit works in us. May, may he help us to put to death our sin and be transformed into the image of this man who has come down from heaven. And so as the people of Christ, may we live with Jesus as our head, as our authority, as our representative. All Christ's reward is now shared with us through faith in him. Because we are united to the Lord. Jesus' righteousness is now your righteousness. Jesus' inheritance is now your inheritance if you're in Christ. Jesus' kingdom now belongs to you. Therefore, we, since we have received such undeserved blessing in Christ, may we then, as recipients of God's glory and grace, may we reflect back to God, our triune God, the glory that he has poured out upon us. May we bring praise to him as the one who is supreme over all. The Christ Jesus who has been given a name that is above every name, a name that is more excellent than the angels, the very name of God himself. Jesus deserves our praise. And then fourthly, marvel at the good news that we, by God's grace, may catch a glimpse of this glory, let alone be transformed by it. Happy are those who behold this glory I've described. Happy. This is a blessed thing. Blessed are those who see in some part the radiance of this glory, the glory of God made manifest to us in Jesus Christ. May we marvel that God would show us even just a glimpse of this glory. How marvelous would it be just to get a peek of it, but yet God has done more than that. He has shown himself fully and comprehensively to us in his Son. It is a sweet thing to be in the light of the sun, but how much lovelier is it to bask in the rays of the sun of righteousness? And yet, if you are in Christ, you are bathing in the glory of Christ every day. For in Christ, we not only behold the glory of Christ, we don't only get a glimpse of it, let alone a full vision of it, but we are being transformed by this glory. This glory is being poured into our hearts and transforming us and making us more like Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached this. He said, the saints have their souls forever wrapped in this light. It is an unspeakable, full, and intimate manner that they don't only behold this brightness, but that they have it in them. Their souls are filled with it. Christ dwells in the hearts of the saints. The glory of this life does not only pour forth itself unto them, but in them. 
See, in Christ Jesus, the exact imprint of God's being radiates the glory of God to us. And indeed, we not only see this glory by God's grace, but we are being filled with this glory by God's grace. That the Holy Spirit has taken up in residence within us. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We are, as Peter would say, becoming partakers of the divine nature. Therefore, as we consider Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, may we worship him and worship him alone. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that in your kindness, you would not only give us a glimpse of your glory, but Lord, that you would shine the fullness of your character, of your goodness, of your beauty upon us in the incarnation of your son, who is the radiance of your glory, who is the exact imprint, the exact character of your nature. Father, may we marvel that you have not only shown yourself to us in Christ, but Lord, by the revelation of Christ, you have made purification for our sins. You have redeemed us and saved us. Lord, you have caused us to share in the glory of Christ. And Lord, not just share it, but be transformed by it. Father, as we consider the miracle of Christmas, or may we never be content to just see it as a quaint story acute manger scene. But Lord, may we see it as the day the world changed. The day in which you, our eternal God, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, we see your glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to be enamored, transformed by your grace. Lord, we love you and we thank you for our time and your word together this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.